Well, good morning. My name is John, and I am one of the pastors here at Evergreen. I'm actually the new kid on the block. So it's good to be here, good to be with you this morning. I want to invite you to turn over in your scriptures to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I think it would be good uh, for us all to have the text open this morning as we move through it together. And I'm going to read uh, verses 13 through 21, but we're going to talk uh, about the whole context going on here between verses 13 and 35. But for our sake, we'll just read through these few verses, and then we'll step into the story. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk together along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these few days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. Holy Spirit, we open ourselves now, and we ask that you would come and teach us, instruct us, uh, reveal more of who you are to each one of us in this room in a way that we can understand, a way that we can lay down some of our already preconceived ideas and assumptions about who you are and take up who you truly are so that we can be transformed and become more like you, Jesus, in this beautiful world that you have placed us in. And I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you and would also be encouraging and a blessing to each one of us in this room and watching online today. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. So we're going to start a new series for the next seven weeks. We're going to live into this question, if then. Very simple question. If the resurrection happened, and if the resurrection is still happening today, then what? How are we to live and be in the world? What, what kinds of people is Jesus inviting us to be as we engage with the places that we live, work, and play? We talk about these beliefs that we proclaim as Jesus followers. We believe in a physical bodily resurrection that Jesus rose on the third day and then walked out of the grave into a physical world and interacted with people and talked to them about the kingdom of God over a 40-day period. So if that's true and we as Jesus followers believe that and proclaim that, how does that change the, the way in which we interact with the world around us? 
How does it change and interact with the way that we engage with people? How does it change our perspectives on why God has us here at this particular time in history? And the challenge for me this morning is to um, help us to realize that there are probably some assumptions that all of us hold about Jesus that probably aren't 100% accurate, and we need to be honest about those assumptions and start the process of realigning, reorienting, and remembering the way of Jesus together. That's why we gather here on Sundays, is to reorient ourselves around the way of Jesus. So we want to be the kinds of people that are always asking the question, where could we possibly be missing it? And what assumptions do I need to lay down? And what assumptions can I set aside so that I can pick up and start to fully live into the way that Jesus calls us to live? I want us to think about this for a moment together. When you are in human relationships or you're watching people interact with one another, are you aware of the fact that you are always making assumptions and judgment calls about people all the time? You're aware of that, right? We're, we're making assumptions about people. You see a mom at Target with two kids and the kids are losing it. And what kind of narrative pops up in your head? If you're a parent, you might think like, oh my gosh, I've been there before. Or you might think, man, get control over your children. Don't you know how to parent these people? And there's all kinds of assumptions and judgment calls that we make about people. We're always coming to conclusions based on very little information. And what I've discovered over life is the best way to lay down our assumptions about people is to enter into what we would call a relationship with somebody. Because when you enter into a relationship with a person, what happens to those assumptions? They start to alter and shift and change because you realize that person that I'm interacting with is in a story and their story has characters like my story has characters. They're being shaped and formed by the people around them. Their culture is shaping them just like my culture is shaping me. Their environment is influencing them in the way that it's influencing me. And so when you enter into a story with another person, Many times what happens is our assumptions about that person or our initial assumptions begin to shift and move. And we always have to keep that in mind that being in a relationship with a person helps to reframe some of the way that we think about people. So this morning we find ourselves reading an interesting story about two followers of Jesus and then we see Jesus interacting with these two disciples. And there's all kinds of weird stuff going on in the story. But if we step back for a moment and we think, okay, here's two people that followed Jesus, like physically followed Jesus with other people. They heard his teachings. They watched him do signs and miracles. They have to be all in with Jesus, right? If you're following Jesus and you actually see him and interact with him, then you have to be all in with whatever happens and whatever Jesus says, you're like, I'm all in. And yet, they're walking away from Jerusalem and they're heading home back to Emmaus and Jesus walks up right next to them and they don't recognize him. What in the heck is going on in the story? So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna explore that, that dynamic. What was it that kept them from actually seeing Jesus, even though he's right next to them. The text tells us that they don't recognize him. What kept them from seeing Jesus? 
a good question that we might ask ourselves as the reader is, what is it that's possibly keeping us from seeing Jesus? And then what opened their eyes? What did it take? And what's it going to take for us to really truly see Jesus as he is and not just based on our already preconceived assumptions of what Jesus is and is up to in the world? So for us, it's going to require a great deal of humility, openness, and courage to the possibility that there might be some things that we have to set down in order to take up a more broader perspective of who Jesus is and what he's up to in the world. Because if we don't do that, if we don't come to the text with humility and openness, my fear is that we will continue to stay blinded to who Jesus is. So we've got to allow the cross and the resurrection to reshape and reframe how we see Jesus and what that means for us. Now, here's the good news. If we allow this to happen, if we come with an openness and we allow the cross and the resurrection to shatter our preconceived ideas and assumptions, our eyes will be open and we will see Jesus for who he really is and then transformation can take place in our lives. So let's explore together. What was it that was keeping these two followers of Jesus from actually seeing Jesus? If you look at verse 15 in your text, it says, Jesus himself came up alongside them and walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, other translations that you read will say their eyes were kept from seeing Jesus. Now, what was keeping them from seeing Jesus? That's the question that we as the reader have to ask ourselves. He's right there, right next to them, and something kept them from seeing Jesus. Immediately, my mind went over to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, where Jesus appears to his followers, and he's standing right in front of them, and they're looking at him, and Matthew writes this, some believed and some doubted. And you go, what? I mean, what kind of storytelling is that? Some believed and some doubted. And Jesus didn't try to convince those who doubted. What did Jesus do? He invited them to participate in what God was up to in the world. So that's good news for everybody in the room. That those of you who believe, those of you who doubt, we all get to participate in what God is doing in the world. Regardless of where we're at, we get to participate in what God is doing. So let's explore some more to see what kept them from seeing. What is it that kept them from seeing who Jesus was and to realize that we are really no different than these two disciples? You've got two disciples. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're going to Emmaus because their leader had been executed and they are extremely disappointed. It says their faces were downcast. That's like the ultimate disappointment. Now imagine with me, you've been following this rabbi for years. You've given away your possessions. You've moved away from everything that you knew was real. And you've been following this person for years because you have a certain set of ideas about what this person is going to accomplish in life. You wouldn't give up everything just because you found this person to be inspiring. You would give up everything to follow this person because of a certain set of ideas and assumptions that you had already made in your mind that you thought this is what this is about. Two weeks ago, we explored Jesus riding into Jerusalem 
on a donkey. And it says that all of his disciples, which means these two would have been there too, were throwing down palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of the living God is coming into Jerusalem. And as they're shouting Hosanna, what they're saying is God is going to save us. God is going to redeem us. The time has now arrived where God is going to step back in and reestablish himself as the rightful king over all the world. And this is what his believers would have been thinking. Everything is about to change. This was a monumental event in the life of Jesus' followers. They were entering into Passover week, which is significant. Because if you think about Passover week and what God's people would celebrate during Passover week, this was a time of remembering what God had done in their history all the way back to the Exodus story in the Old Testament when God stepped in and redeemed the people out of slavery, out of oppression, led them to victory through a savior named Moses, and then they reestablished themselves as God's people on the earth. So this is the framework that's being set up for us. This is what the people are thinking, that this person, Jesus, is going to lead us into freedom. This is why they're shouting, Hosanna. He's like, Jesus is kind of like the new Moses in their mind. This person is going to lead us into victory and he's going to help us overthrow our oppressors, which back then were the Egyptians, and now it's the Romans. And so God is going to reestablish himself as the rightful king over the world, and he's going to overthrow the evil oppressor, the Romans, and reestablish God's people in their rightful place. This is their thinking. This is the way that they're framing this. Caesar, the all-powerful Caesar who's currently in charge, is no longer going to be in charge. Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. So these followers are going, oh my gosh, this is, this is about to go down. This is about to happen. The thing that we've been crying out for for years is about to shift and move. And then as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, what happens? He gets handed over to the empire. The rulers and authorities take him. They put him on trial and then they execute him. They destroy him. Boom, the movement is over. Now, some of these disciples are saying he came back from the dead. And last week we explored the fact that it was women who were the first eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. But as we stated last week, according to culture, women tend to be hysterical. So you can't trust the eyewitness of women. So therefore, the question remains, did Jesus actually rise from the dead because we can't believe the eyewitness account of women? And so these two disciples are a lot like us. God didn't come through how we expected God to come through. So I guess we have to go back home and rebuild our lives in some form and capacity. Why? because they had already had a set of assumptions that they believed the Messiah was and was not. The Messiah didn't align with their ideas of what the king was about to do. Now, as the reader, we have to step back with courage and humility and ask ourselves the questions, 
What happens when our ideas about Jesus and what he came to do don't align with what the scriptures actually teach us? What do we do then? And there's one of three responses that I think are the healthiest, but I, what I see happening today in culture and what I'm observing and I'm watching unfold in our context today, when things don't align or things are challenged and we're uncomfortable with that, one of the observations that I'm making is people tend to knuckle down on what they already believe and they get louder and louder and stronger and stronger and resist any form of change and they get really insular. And what they do is they go and they put themselves in what are called echo chambers and surround themselves with people who already believe like them just to reinforce the ideas, to kind of quiet the other stuff going on around them, and then they just continue to reinforce those already preconceived ideas. So they kind of just knuckle down. The second group that I see happening today in our context and culture is that people start to question, and they raise questions within their context, and many times what happens is when you start to ask really hard questions, the community gets nervous, and we start to go, I don't really know if we should be living into those kinds of questions, and there isn't a lot of space for those people, so what they do is they tend to just kind of walk away from the community, and they can get cynical or hardened or jaded, and they're told you can't really live into those questions, and so there's really no place for them. They go into what we might call a, a deconstruction mode, and they start to deconstruct and asking questions about their Christianity or their precious held beliefs that they had always assumed to be true, but they're starting to go, well, I don't know if that's true anymore, and so there's not a lot of room for them to express or, or to grow in those ideas, and they get really uncomfortable and make the community uncomfortable. But we've gotta make space for those people because in Matthew's Gospel, it says some believed and some doubted. And Jesus says, you're all welcome to participate in what I'm up to in the world. Who's in? All of you. So those people who are kind of in that deconstruction mode, is there a place for them? Is there a place for them in this thing that we call Christianity? Is there a place for them in the church to be able to say, I'm not really sure, but I'm living kind of with that uncertainty right now. And there's absolutely a place for people like that. In fact, it's encouraged for you to live into that deconstruction mode and start to ask those hard questions that maybe you're afraid to ask because if you ask those questions, what happens when your family says, we don't talk about that kind of stuff here, and then you're kicked out? And that's been the experience of a lot of people that I know in life who are like, I don't know if I feel safe anymore in the church. And so they leave the church, and they're kind of left in this deconstruction mode. And that third group that I think I see rising up are the people that I would call the reconstructionists, and they're doing the hard work of looking at their, their really preciously held beliefs that have been somewhat deconstructed, and they're starting to put them back together in more beautiful and profound ways, and their world is getting bigger and bigger, and they're starting to see like, oh, this Jesus is actually really compelling, and I want to follow this Jesus, and I want to do something in the world. And those are the people I think, oh my gosh, we as the church can help create space, a, a safe space for them to reconstruct that faith around this risen Christ and start living into those questions of what is Jesus up to in the world and what does it mean when we say Jesus is risen and not just back then, but he's risen now and he's up to something right now walking throughout the earth and what do we get to do as his followers? That's the hard work 
that I hope to be able to help people understand this is what it means to follow Jesus, even if you live with questions. And then I look at these two and I think to myself, do we, do we think we would be any different than these two? Like, really? Do we, do we think, if we look at ourselves and think, how would I respond to my preconceived ideas and then I see this happen, do I think I would be any different than them? Do I, would I head home and say, you know what? The movement is over. They're just like us, aren't they? They've already got a pre-established idea about how God works in the world. And when those ideas are challenged or they don't line up with our vision of how we think God works in the world, it's like, well, this, this can't be true. It's deeply ingrained in their psyche and in their mind and in their soul. And it turns out what they end up seeing in this Jesus story doesn't align with what they perceive to be Jesus' real story, and so it's over. And just when you think it's over, the story starts to get weird. Isn't that seem how God works? Just when you think the story's over, it gets weird and kind of funny. And then the story turns on us. The two are heading back, and they're talking about what happened, and Jesus sidles up next to them, just like a total Jesus move. And what does he say? What are you guys talking about? Like, are you serious? What are we talking about? Did, didn't you, are, are you aware of what happened in Jerusalem? Everybody's talking about what happened in Jerusalem because everyone is talking about this topic. Now, if I were to say to you, let's step back in time. It's September 11th, 2001. What are you all thinking? I don't need to tell you what to think. It's in our psyche as a nation. September 11th, 2001. There's a whole story there. And when we were, if we were around during that time, all of us are going, yeah, I know what happened on September 11th, 2001. And every time September 11th rolls around, it comes back up on our awareness. But on that day, do you remember that day? Did anybody talk about anything else? It's all we talked about. And we talked about it, and we talked about it, and we talked about it. It's like time stood still. We were glued to the news. We were all watching as these events unraveled before our eyes. We were in disbelief. How could this happen? And it's the only thing that we talked about. Now in Jerusalem, this king was killed. It's the only thing that people are talking about. So when Jesus comes up and asks the question, hey, what are you talking about? You kind of go, what? What's your point? How, how, where have you been? Everybody's talking about this, and he's standing right next to them asking the question, and they don't even recognize him. Now, at this point, when you see this kind of stuff going on in the story, you have to step back as the reader and go, oh, that's weird. I should probably pay attention to that. That's really strange. I think this is one of the most convicting sections of Scripture that we have. When it says they were kept from seeing him, that's like, ooh, you should pay attention to that as a reader. Something is keeping them from seeing. And as a reader, I have to then step back and go, so what's keeping me from seeing? And how am I any different? And then their, their assumptions are exposed. And what happens 
when your assumptions are exposed? Do you go, oh, I don't want to look at that? Or do you step deeper into it and go, maybe I got some things to learn? But look at what it says in verse 21. They reveal their hand. He says, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. <laughs> there it is. There's the answer. We had like sunk our entire hope into the reality that this king, Jesus, was going to redeem all of Israel. And do you see why they can't see? Because in their mind, Jesus was defeated. He went up against the empire. He got crushed and destroyed. And so therefore, the movement is over. We might as well go back home. So then I, as the reader, have to step back and ask myself the question, what assumptions have I made that I need to step back and look and reevaluate? These two followers have been saturated in these teachings, and they believe that Jesus was going to redeem Israel. Jesus comes riding into Israel, comes riding into Jerusalem. They're laying down palm branches. They're yelling, Hosanna. He's going to rescue us. What is he going to rescue us from? From Rome, from the evil oppressor. He's going to set us free. It's Passover week, friends. Like, how does it not become more obvious? Like, this is the week. This is how God is setting this up. Just like he had done in the past. We're entering into Passover week. All these Jews have made the pilgrimage to come into Jerusalem. We're shouting Hosanna, waving palm branches. Here comes Jesus riding in. He's going to overthrow the evil oppressor and he's going to reestablish himself as the king. And God's going to put right back in the center because God is on our side and not on their side. He makes this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's going to lead a revolt just like Moses did and he's going to redeem Israel, and yet what happened? He's put on trial, he's executed and killed, handed over, it's done. That's disappointing. Then the text tells us that they're on their way to Emmaus. Now, as a 21st century uh, person who, who's been reading these scriptures for years and years and years, I've looked at this story and just said, okay, they're on their way to Emmaus, so what? But somebody had enlightened me through the Bible Project to look into the context of Emmaus. And I thought, well, what was going on in Emmaus? Why are they going back to Emmaus? And why does the author make a comment about Emmaus as if that might be something we should pay attention to? Now, again, if I told you, friends, hey, uh, this year, September 11th, 2021, Shannon and I are going to ground zero. What would you assume? Would I need to give you a whole backstory? Oh, you're just going on a vacation? No, we're going to ground zero. We're, we're going to visit the monument. We're going to remember. There's like a whole story that would be attached to that that I wouldn't have to go into great detail. You all would just know. So for the first century reader, the text says they're on their way to, to Emmaus. The reader's going, oh, that's loaded. We know what's going on there. They're heading back to Emmaus. Now, to give you a little context, there was a famous battle that had happened in Emmaus 150 years prior to Jesus walking on the earth. During this time in history, God's people were under the oppression of the Syrians. And the Syrians were in charge. They were ruling over God's people. And there was a family within God's people referred to as the Maccabees. And in the Maccabees, they were also referred to as the Hammer. Is that a sweet name? The Hammer. 
And there was one particular person in the Maccabee family named Judas Maccabee who rose up, got a whole army behind him, and led a great charge against the Maccabee stronghold. He led the battle of Emmaus. This is deeply rooted in these two disciples. There were 6,000 Syrians who were planning to go and charge against God's people. And Judas Maccabee heard about this. The hammer rose up and did a preempted strike. And so they snuck up on the Syrians with 3,000. So you got 3,000 against 6,000. Those are really bad odds. But the 3,000 rise up, and Judas Maccabee stands up on that night before they charge in to go fight the Syrians, and this is what he says. Ready? Don't fear their numbers. Remember how our ancestors were saved at the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his mighty army charged and sought to destroy them. So let us cry out to heaven to see if God will favor us and remember his covenant with our people and crush this heathen army before us. Then all the Gentiles will know that there is one who redeems and saves Israel. And guess what? They won that battle. These two followers of Jesus are steeped in a story. They have heard this story their entire lives. This is how God is. This is what God does. God is on our side. God will redeem us. And you hear about this Jesus, and this Jesus keeps saying, the kingdom of God is here. And you're like, oh man, that's loaded. God is going to be king in the world, not Caesar. And if you're a first century Drew, this story has been brought to you as a child all the way up until you're older in life. It's on. It's time to kill the Romans. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, this is what redemption is going to look like. And the way to freedom is always through military force and power. Who has the more powerful army? That's how you achieve freedom and peace on earth. And Jesus, in the face of this great force, what does he do? He dies. And then he rises again. And what is Jesus saying? That's how you defeat evil in the world. Through weakness. How do you overcome evil? You choose the way of Jesus and you love your enemies. Your whole life, you've been told, you go and you fight against your enemies. Then Jesus comes into the scene. He's standing on a hillside, and he says to his followers, actually, you love your enemies. You turn the other cheek. You go in the way of Jesus, because this is how you, this is how you achieve peace on earth. And what seems like the end is actually just the beginning. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, that was his statement of letting everyone know, this is how you overcome evil in the world. You let it take you and you love radically, and you give yourself to it, and you stand in the face of all that opposition, and you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, and he was crushed. Jesus had a very clear vision of what it actually means to be a human being in the world, and he shows us the way. And if we continue to reject the way, we're going to continue to stay in the chaos that we see around us, and that Jesus gives us a clear vision of this is how I want you to be in the world. This is how I want my people to be the way that evil is actually confronted through the way of Jesus is by doing good and loving those who persecute us. Jesus made it very clear that when you live in this way, you live in the kingdom of God as a way of life. Jesus let evil defeat him, and therefore he defeated evil. 
And then he goes into a Bible study, as Scrappy and Rascal revealed, about the whole of the Old Testament. You would think, okay, after the Bible study, they're going to get it. Their eyes are going to be opened. And what does it say? They went through the Bible study and they still didn't get it. They're like, we got all the context, we got everything, and we still don't know who this person is. And then he breaks bread with them. And the moment he breaks bread with them, what happens? Their eyes open and they see. What is that telling us? When they recognize that the way of Jesus is through self-sacrificing love, brokenness, perceived weakness, is when we start to see who Jesus really is. And then we have to step back as followers and go, am I all in with that? Am I in with the way of weakness? Where in the kingdom of God, it says the way up is down. And the way that seems crooked is actually straight in the kingdom of God. And the way to love my enemies is through self-sacrificing, a giving of myself, not through forcing power or control, but yielding myself to the way of Jesus. So that's the journey we're going to be on for the next seven weeks. How does the resurrected Jesus expose my already preconceived ideas and assumptions and challenge me to fully align and reorient myself around the way of Jesus. What are we to do? That's the journey, my friends. Get ready. Because let's face it, a lot of us are on our way back to Emmaus. And yet Jesus is coming up right next to us simply asking the question, where are you going? And do you want to participate in what I'm doing in the world today? Let's receive the, the good word before you head back and walk in the way of Jesus in this beautiful world that God has placed us. I pray now that the Lord God would bless you, that he would keep you, that he would cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you, and that he would lift up his countenance upon you in such a way that you would hunger and thirst for Jesus this week in a deep longing to live into his deepest reality. And may his shalom fill you, reverberate, buzz through you like a fierce bass note that you hear in a good song. And may he give you strength in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace be with you.